Good morning, Talkeetna. I am pleasantly surprised with how many of you guys showed up today. I was like driving here this morning. I was like, I'm going to be preaching to an empty room today. Ain't nobody going to come to church. But all the real Alaskans decided to show up. Good job. I'm proud of you. I want to do a quick PSA uh, before we jump in for the 21 days of prayer and fasting that is coming up on January 1st. You're not going to want to miss the, the service on Sunday, December 31st. That is the day that we are going to launch into that 21 days. Uh, we're actually going to move the January potluck to December 31st instead of January 7th. And we're going to have communion on that day uh, as well. Uh, we annually begin the year with 21 days of prayer and fasting. So we are, uh, I need to move this. You'll forgive me later, I promise. Uh, this, this three weeks of prayer and fasting, it's not just uh, a three-week uh, period of asceticism where we're just denying ourselves. This, uh, this three weeks, is a, it's a period of time that I've grown to really love, and I take it very seriously. Uh, it's three weeks during the year uh, that we begin the year uh, just seeking the Lord, setting some time aside to seek the Lord in the busyness of life, in a, in a deeper way than we maybe normally can throughout our year uh, with a little greater intention for direction for ourselves personally, uh, but all the more for our church globally and for our different campuses. So for our campus here in Talkeetna. Um, during that time, I'm going to be preparing a short devotional that I'll put on our Facebook page each morning and uh, we'll have several evenings during that time where we're going to have corporate, uh, corporate prayer uh, and worship. And uh, we'll get the schedule for that out to you guys as soon as we have that finalized. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have more information about that. The whole, like I said, the whole uh, service on the 31st is going to be directed towards that uh, before we jump in there. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited and uh, hope you guys will join me in that. So let's jump in. Uh, the other day, I jumped into a situation that I didn't necessarily mean to, uh, and I decided uh, inadvertently to put myself to a test. I was, I was curious, uh, how, how good of a job am I doing training and, and raising my kids? And so I decided to ask my five-year-old little girl, why do we celebrate Christmas? Actually, it's, it, it, it wasn't something that I planned out. It, was, it just kind of happened. It wasn't premeditated at all. I didn't realize what I was doing until the words were falling out of my mouth. Uh, on Friday, our house was, uh, it was engulfed in a little bit of chaos. Uh, Emily was over singing some songs with Sophie, and uh, the kids were running around roughhousing and having a good time. Uh, I, I think this was just a few minutes after our friend Alan had left. He stopped by with a delivery of eggs, and he, he stuck around, and we were talking about men's summit and how we were excited uh, to go this year. And, and uh, he helped me get the kids all riled up. You know, Alan, he likes to, he loves to play with the kids. And so the kids are running around. Mickey goes darting through the dining room. And when she was close enough, I reached down and I grabbed her and I picked her up and I pulled her close. And I asked her the first thing that popped into my head. Uh, I said, Mickey, 
why do we celebrate Christmas? And as these words are coming out of my mouth, I was like, oh, if she answers wrong, Emily's going to judge me. I was like, oh, if she gets this wrong, this is going to be an indictment against like my, my pastoral leadership, my, my leadership as a father. Uh, she says something like, oh, it's so we can get presents. I was like, oh, I'm going to feel uh, like a moron. Without hesitation, thank God, Mickey confidently replied, because it's Jesus's birthday, daddy. I was like, yes, that's right. I told her, I was like, that is a perfectly acceptable answer for a five-year-old little girl. And then all my other kids started chiming in. Yeah, you know, like dad, duh. Why do you need to ask us what Christmas is all about? You should know, like you're the pastor of the church, dad. Why don't you know this? Uh, They're like, duh, it's Jesus's birthday, dad. And to which I responded, hey, that's right. Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation of our risen Lord. And my daughter, Maris, my 12-year-old, who is uh, trained well in the ways of sarcasm, she says to me, Dad, you make it sound like it's a battle cry. I said, that's exactly right. Christmas is a declaration of war. The incarnation of Jesus was a declaration of war by God the Father. He put the enemy and the kingdom of darkness on notice with the incarnation of our risen Lord. All throughout the book of Isaiah, God is actually portrayed as this divine warrior. Only this divine warrior, he didn't come in his incarnation to exact merciless vengeance. Isaiah tells us that the Lord, he's going to bring salvation by coming himself as Emmanuel, by coming as God with us, as a humble son of David filled with God's spirit so that he can lay down his life for us, initiating the new covenant. Jesus, he didn't humble himself by coming to this earth as a baby just so he could institute a fun holiday season. Though that It's not inappropriate for us uh, as long as Christ remains the focus to celebrate during this time. But what Jesus humbled himself for, the reason that the word became flesh and came and dwelt among us was to proclaim peace to those far and near, to eliminate injustice and to atone for the sin of every believer. So that by faith, through grace, we could be reconciled to God the Father. But we are still, we are still in this waiting period. We're waiting for the return of Jesus. And we currently reside in this season of the already and not yet. We are in the age of the Messiah King, but we don't live in a time where he is fully reigning over his kingdom. The author of Hebrews, and he speaks to the authority and the rule uh, that God the Father gives to Jesus in this way in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. It says, now in putting everything in, subject, in subjection to him being Jesus, God the Father left nothing outside of Jesus's control at present. We do not see everything in subjugation to Jesus. But by the promise 
of God's unfailing word, we have an unparalleled confidence in what Isaiah foretold. We can look forward to the day when the Prince of Peace will establish peace here on earth, all throughout the earth. And at Christmas, this is the battle that rages on in our world. This is the battle that rages in our very soul, in our flesh, and in the unseen realm. It is the battle that spans all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And it is the battle whose happy ending comes in the resurrection and the second coming of our Lord and Savior. Christmas is an opportunity for many who do not yet know the goodness of the Lord to discover who he is in this unassuming baby. The baby born in a manger was not given to be this sentimental token of God's love. This baby born in a manger that we celebrate year in and year out, he is the Lord incarnate. This unassuming baby, he's not to be discarded and dismissed next month like the Christmas pajamas that your mother-in-law gave you. This baby in a manger that we revisit Every year, the truth is he's a divine warrior. He's a divine warrior that's wrapped in swaddling clothes, arriving in a barn in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. In the same common form and fashion that every one of us entered the world. But the coming of this baby was different. The arrival of this baby was actually very uncommon. The arrival of the divine warrior that's wrapped in swaddling clothes, he inaugurated a war and he began the age of the Messiah King. This morning, we will be taking a look at Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven. We're gonna look at the majority of this passage in a message called the great Christmas conflict. See, none of us, None of us are likely inexperienced when it comes to conflict. Though I'm sure when you enter into that place of struggle, you often feel alone. Or when you find yourself in disagreements, you feel cut off. If we're honest with ourselves, We all know that conflict is actually not unique to our own personal experience. And during this Christmas season, this can sometimes seem magnified in our lives. While we should should be associating this holiday season every year with joy and love and, and unity and happy memories, conflict sometimes seems to arise all the more in this season. Christmas often, it often is a time where families come together. But often that's a time for even greater conflict to arise. It's okay. You're at church. You're not going to lie to Jesus about this. You can be honest. For as much joy as this season can bring, oftentimes there's dread that looms in the back of our minds because we know that there's potential 
for the conflict that has been brushed aside to rear its ugly head, for the conflict that is rooted in long-standing family dynamics, unresolved issues that plague our lives, or differing expectations of how the holidays should be spent. There's this looming expectation that I need to buy gifts for everyone and host an abundance of gatherings and participate in all of these different holiday activities, which can add financial stress or time management stress to your life. There's disagreements in homes about budgeting or spending or gift choices. uh, And this may lead to conflicts between you and your spouse, trying to balance all of these expectations, all of these things can lead to conflicts over how your time is spent and it can strain relationships. Where is the peace that we long for? Where's this peace that Isaiah foretold? Where's the peace that the coming Messiah was supposed to bring with him when Isaiah wrote in chapter nine, verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From the very beginning, long before Isaiah wrote this prophecy of this kingdom that the Messiah would bring of unending peace, when God created mankind, he created you and I in his image. We are here on this earth as representatives of God. We are his imagers. Jesus came and he made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. If you put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you have been reconciled to the Father. And Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Of those who have been reconciled to the Father, he writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I, if we are believers, if we put our faith in Jesus, then we are now citizens of heaven. We can live in peace. And we are called to make peace. But peace doesn't just happen. We have to create peace. We have to work for peace. We have to make peace. It often comes by way of sacrifice making peace, true, real, shalom, wholeness, peace. It can only happen when we are walking in step with the Lord, when we are walking by the spirit that he gave us. Jesus seemed to contradict this prophecy that Isaiah had given of Jesus when he is recorded in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, saying, do not think that I have come to bring peace. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So if you're called to be a peacemaker, how do we reconcile this? How do we understand this? This is a hard saying of Jesus. Earlier in Matthew chapter five, when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes before he launches into the Sermon on the Mount, he said in verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers 
for they shall be, be called sons of God. How do we reconcile all of these passages that we're looking at on peace? Especially in light of the unending peaceful rule that Jesus is supposed to bring. Does this verse about the sword, does this affirm the inevitability of violence in our interaction with non-Christians? Does it imply that our relationship with unbelievers is always going to be characterized by conflict? Does this verse override all of the other scriptures about peacemaking? It's important to know that when Jesus makes a statement in regards of bringing a sword, he was in that moment commissioning his disciples. He was sending them out to extend the kingdom of God. He was sending them out on a little missions trip around the land of Israel. And he sends them out two by two. And he starts off telling his disciples to go in peace. In Matthew chapter 13, or Matthew chapter 10, verse 13, he said, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So this would seem to imply, maybe in some real sense, if we have embraced living a life that is on mission for the kingdom, then we should be, we are bearers of peace. And our fruitfulness depends on the discernment of peace in our evangelistic context. And it also implies that there are people who may be peaceful towards us in the world, who may not ever respond to the message of the gospel. The second mention of peace in Matthew chapter 10, it relates to persecution and suffering that could come when we are on mission for Jesus. Verses 34 through 38 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against father and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. we've taken up our cross, we've denied ourselves. If we are following Jesus, if we are followers of Jesus in the true sense of being a disciple of Christ, then we are called to be peacemakers. We're called to be evangelists. And when we speak a blessing of peace, we should speak a blessing of peace on all those families within our sphere of influence, on all of those that we come in contact with. Nevertheless, the response to our message, it's going to be mixed. Some are going to accept the message. Some are going to reject it. And because of this, that's going to divide people. That's going to divide families. Conflicts will ensue because of the message of peace. That's why Jesus speaks of this sword. Jesus reminds his followers of his supreme worth and the need that we must have to follow him, regardless of any kind of negative fallout that may ensue. Jesus didn't just use this metaphor of a, of a sword to depict 
the, any form of violence and belligerence that we would, uh, that we would, uh, that we would want to uh, share with people uh, when, they, when we're sharing the message of the gospel and they don't respond well and they respond with persecution. We don't return that. We don't respond with e- evil with evil. We respond to evil with love. And Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. He's not making some broad statement about his ultimate purpose. He's pointing to a very real result of what may happen when we proclaim the kingdom. As Jesus uh, announced the kingdom of God, and he called for our primary allegiance to be to him, it, it often would split families at his, in his time. And it even does now. Even though the kingdom of God ultimately establishes God's peace on earth, the advancement of his kingdom, it may cause conflict. It may bring division. As citizens of heaven seeking to advance God's kingdom by way of the great commission, shouldn't be our, uh, shouldn't be our aim to seek conflict. It shouldn't be our aim to seek division. We are not here to cause division. That's not our goal, but it will in fact happen. Jesus makes it clear We are called to be peacemakers. We should seek to live in peace with one another. Paul emphasizes this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, when he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But making peace, it's not the same as making nice. Sometimes, Our efforts bring forth genuine peace to different situations we encounter. Sometimes our efforts bring peace to relationships. Sometimes it will lead to conflict. But we have to seek to serve God faithfully in all the circumstances that we find ourselves in, knowing that in the end, his genuine, lasting peace will cover over all of creation. As children of God, our purpose is to represent the Prince of Peace, regardless of the immediate effect it has in our life. So this morning, we look at Isaiah's prophecy of unending peace, the reign of the the Messiah King, and the peace that it would bring. And we ask ourselves this question, as we find ourselves in this space, this, this time, this season of the already but not yet, uh, where we are surely to have the opportunity to be at peace, but we oftentimes are at conflict. Where we have the opportunity to experience peace in our lives, how do we reconcile this world of injustice and conflict and unrighteousness? Several years ago, uh, when Sophie and I were celebrating uh, the news that after we had already had a couple children, uh, Sophie was again about to bring another precious life into this world. And this caused us to experience conflict with somebody that was very close to us in our life. This person uh, 
who was and still is very dear to us. But at this time and this particular season, this person came to my wife and suggested that uh, this many kids would be a mistake. There's no way that two people could really divide up all of their time and love uh, in enough ways to properly care for so many children. And they suggested that there were avenues that we should seriously consider to prohibit uh, bringing another life into this world. Uh, When my wife told me about this interaction that she had had, I have to admit, I didn't react uh, in very godly ways uh, in my mind toward this person. I never confronted this person over their unwanted advice, but I did carry some unforgiveness for a season. Uh, I had some callousness towards them for quite some time. Several years and several children later, I finally recognized that I was walking in disobedience, uh, that I was sexually in rebellion uh, towards God and his word uh, for carrying this unforgiveness. And I finally, I forgave this person and I restored our relationship and it offered me the ability to uh, speak life-giving words to them again and, and interact with them in love instead of ignoring them every time they were around and making sure that I was avoiding them at all costs, uh, forgiving them their words, even though they never knew uh, what it caused between us Forgiving them, it reconciled our relationship. Reconciliation begins with this baby in a manger. When we talk about this manger scene, this silent night, it probably was not so silent. Bible scholars, they'll point out that... uh, At this time, if you were a little girl, if you were a little Jewish girl, you would be excited. You would be dreaming of being the mother of the Messiah. They all knew that it was promised that a savior was coming. They knew that there was a redeemer coming. So when the angel Gabriel, when he appeared uh, to Mary, we know from Luke chapter one that Mary, she was, she was troubled at the angel's greeting, but there isn't really any indication that the message bothered her. At first she does reply like, well, how can this be? I'm a, I'm a virgin. Uh, but when Gabriel gives her an explanation for this, her response is simply in Luke chapter one, verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She knew like most Israelites in that day that somebody was going to bring this child into the world. Somebody was going to bring the Messiah into the world. The coming Messiah was going to have a mother. Mary was honored that it was her. The angel gave Mary an idea of who this baby was going to be. He told her that she was going to have a son and that she should name him Jesus. And in Luke chapter one, verse 32 and 33, Gabriel echoes this prophecy of Isaiah to Mary. He says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Gabriel ends this interaction with this assurance that all of this is going to come to pass. 
and that no word of God will fail. And in that moment, Mary probably did not understand. No, Mary probably didn't know some of the things that would happen with Jesus. Very similar to how we see later the disciples of Jesus. They didn't quite understand Jesus's divinity. They didn't quite understand that he was God because Jesus would actually make these claims and affirm his deity. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, they would manipulate the Roman government and have Jesus crucified. The Messiah being God incarnate, it wasn't the traditional Jewish understanding of these prophecies at that time. Mary probably expected, like all of Jesus's followers later would, for Jesus to be a political figure. That he was going to come and save them from the physical conflict that they were currently residing in. He was there, they thought, to save them in the here and now, to save them physically. They thought Jesus would be a savior that freed their nation from Roman oppression. That is likely how Mary understood the promise of Jesus, that he was going to be another deliverer. She would later discover that Jesus had actually come not to redeem just the nation of Israel, but the whole world to make us all new. Mary likely faced skepticism and judgment in the midst of fulfilling her extraordinary call. Her acceptance of being the mother to the Messiah put her in conflict in the engagement she had with Joseph. Matthew's gospel tells us that Joseph actually planned to divorce her, but he was going to do it quietly so she could avoid a big public disgrace. And he would have had there not been an act of divine intervention. But Mary, she still was faced with the thought of being divorced. The thought of having to resolve the situation of maintaining family relationships. It would have been a huge emotional and physical challenge for this girl. She was facing disownment and destitution. Those were real outcomes that were set before her. Mary's unexpected pregnancy before marriage would have subjected her to a social stigma. She would have been judged harshly by her community. This situation would have been perceived as a great scandal. It would have led to potential ostracism but her accepting that she was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, it had a profound and overwhelming revelation for this girl. And she responded with faith and obedience. The great magnitude of this role that was assigned to her could have led to moments of doubt Moments of great internal conflict. And that that first Christmas, the, the birth of Christ that we celebrate every year, the reality of that nativity, it isn't the beautiful storybook version that we get when we are kids. Mary and Joseph, they were thrust into an unknown, scary situation. 
a situation of great conflict where they had to stand fully dependent on the Lord. Imagine Mary's journey carrying the weight of this promise that exceeded conventional expectations. Much like Mary, we also find ourselves sometimes in situations where we don't fully grasp the depth of God's plan for our lives. As we reflect on Mary's trust in God's promises, should draw our attentions to this profound truth that when we seek to embody the values of the kingdom, it's not always met by those around us with immediate understanding or approval. in our pursuit of representing the kingdom here on this earth. We are called to display kingdom character. We are called to embody the fruit of the spirit. This is a concept that Paul writes about in Galatians 5. And he lists these uh, kingdom characteristics in verses 22 and 23 of Galatians chapter five. And this list, it gives us these qualities. It gives us these characteristics that are said to be produced in the lives of the believers who are guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been to Sunday school, you could probably all list them all out. They're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Only the introverts showed up today. When we, as followers of Jesus, when we are filled with his Holy Spirit, these traits are exhibited in our lives and we are living in unity with the Spirit of God and we're reflecting the true nature of God The question of how these fruits actually advance the kingdom of heaven is rooted in the idea that as an individual believer, as we grow in our embodiment of these virtues, they contribute to the spread of God's influence here on this earth and the realization of his kingdom here on this earth. These qualities play a role in advancing the kingdom of heaven in the here and the now. unconditional love fosters unity and harmony among believers. And it demonstrates God's love to this world. If you possess a joyful demeanor, it can be infectious. It can impact the spirit and the attitudes of those around you and attract others to the joy found in having a relationship with Jesus. Living a life of peace, it promotes reconciliation. It helps to resolve conflicts and it creates an environment that is conducive for spiritual growth. Patience allows believers to endure challenges without losing faith. And it demonstrates perseverance while trusting in God's timing and not our own timing. Acts of kindness reflect God's benevolence and can soften hearts. It can make 
people and believers more receptive to God and his message. The demonstration of goodness throughout all areas of our life involves doing what is morally right, doing what is morally just. And when we do this, we reflect the righteousness of God. When we are faithful, when we are faithful to our commitments and to our relationship, it mirrors God's faithfulness to us. It builds trust and it builds credibility in your testimony. Being gentle, having a gentle spirit, it promotes humility. It makes it easier for other people to come and approach you and engage with you and have conversations about your faith. And when we exercise self-control, when we take control of our own actions and our own desires, it reflects the discipline and obedience that we should have to God's will above our own will. And it sets an example for those around us to be able to follow. When we seek to embody these qualities, believers are seen as a good representation, as good ambassadors of God and his kingdom. When we, when we do this, it makes us better uh, influencers in our community, in our workplaces, in our relationships. As people observe the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, they'll be drawn to inquire about the source of such virtue. And it opens doors of opportunity to sharing the message of the gospel and ultimately advancing the kingdom of heaven. But it's important that we are being transformed. The transformation in the life of the believer as we walk out this process of sanctification, we are transformed more into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's how the kingdom advances. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not withstand the advancement of his kingdom. Jesus already put the enemy to open shame in his finished work on the cross. He has given his followers the promised Holy Spirit. And now we are in this time where we should learn to embody the fruit of the spirit. Learning to embody the fruit of the Spirit is this time when we learn to live with kingdom character. It's the first step in learning to walk in unity with God's Spirit. That's how we make advancements. God has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us and guide us to display his fruit in our life, you advance the kingdom of God and you overcome conflict with kingdom character. Embodying kingdom character, it, it doesn't always lead to immediate understanding or approval. In fact, when we embody kingdom character, it may cause other conflicts to arise as a result of our commitment to living out these virtues in our lives. Yet just as Mary's journey unfolded amidst uncertainty, 
Our lives also contribute uh, to the grand narrative of God's kingdom. The tension between the conflict that we face and the peace that is promised by the Messiah, it's real. Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, this, this promise of a Messiah bringing unending peace, a peace that extends beyond our immediate circumstances. This tension is the battleground where the kingdom advances. As citizens of heaven, as those who are reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ, we are called to be makers of peace. We are called to seek to live in peace while navigating the conflicts that are common to us in this fallen world. This Christmas story, it's not merely this sentimental tale. It's a declaration of war against the forces of darkness. The birth of Jesus, it inaugurated a war, a battle that will ultimately end upon the return of the king. But as for now, we make this Christmas season an opportunity for those in your own spheres of influences uh, that they may become aware of the Lord. Or if they're still living in opposition to the Lord, if they, they, they maybe are aware of the Lord, but they're living in opposition, that maybe they could discover in this season the true identity of this unassuming baby in a manger who we know is truly a divine warrior. He is the mighty God, humbly wrapped in swaddling clothes. As we confront conflicts during this Christmas season, let the spirit of God guide you. Walk in your kingdom character. Let's look at this list. Let's pull that list up. Let's strive to embody the fruit of the spirit in our lives. Look at this list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ask yourselves right now. Ask the Holy Spirit. Let, pray with me right now. Lord, Father God, pray that you would reveal to each one of us. Lord, reveal to me personally the, just one of these characteristics in which I am lacking in the most, in which we as individuals, each one of us, and the one that we are lacking in the most. Which of these fruits of the Spirit, Lord, would you have me intentionally seek to be more greatly embodied in my life. Lord, show me one of these kingdom characteristics that you would have me seek to display more greatly in my life in these coming months. And Father, when I've become more proficient at embodying this specific kingdom characteristic, when I am competently displaying that fruit of the spirit in my life, Lord, would you direct me to intentionally pursue the next one? That I may display more of these kingdom characteristics in my life. Now, just be silent for a moment. Wait on the Lord and see what he reveals to you, maybe through a word or, or a picture or some kind of an inclination. Jesus name. Amen. Worship team, you can go ahead. Come on up. Now, before you leave here today, ask one of your friends which kingdom characteristic the Lord revealed to them.
And then you share with them which kingdom characteristic the Lord revealed to you and then keep each other accountable towards growing in that in this next season. We, as God's image bearers, we as God's imagers, we contribute to the increase of his government and his peace in the midst of this world that is marred by injustice and conflict. And we do this by living out his kingdom character, especially when we find ourselves embroiled in conflict. Our efforts to live out this kingdom character, it may even lead to a greater tension. It may lead to greater conflict. Yet we must remain confident that in the end, God's genuine and lasting peace will cover over all of creation. In this tension between conflict and promised peace, we find ourselves advancing God's kingdom. One embodiment of kingdom character at a time. As we go with this one last song of worship this morning, I want to ask the Lord and I want to encourage you all. I'm going to pray real quick. Lord, may our lives, each one of us, May our lives individually and collectively as the body of Christ be a testimony to the transformative power of the gospel and your Holy Spirit living within us. As we navigate this tension of the already and not yet, and we eagerly await the fullness of your complete reign, Lord, we ask that you would guide us in our spiritual growth one day at a time. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Stand and worship.